Well, good morning. So good to be here. Um, we're, we really think fondly of this church um, and how you have ministered to our daughter and our son-in-law, now our granddaughter. So just uh, very thankful. Um, pray for you often. And now it's good to just have know some of the guys, at least. Uh, just spending some time with you men uh, has been a, such a joy. So thankful that Pastor Eric invited me to, to come and speak at the men's retreat. <clears throat> and uh, we had some fun, and, uh, but also some serious time in the Word, and I think examining ourselves. And, and so I think it was uh, just praying it was helpful for, for me and, and for these men. Um, really an honor to be here with you this morning to present you the Word of God and preach the Word of God to you. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter <clears throat> 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and let me just pray as we begin. Father, uh, we now open up your word. Lord, you tell us this is the word of God, it's your word to us, and so we would ask you now to uh, give his ears to hear, that you would, uh, we trust, have already prepared our hearts to hear from you, and that you uh, would help us see wonderful things uh, about you from your word, and that you would uh, minister to us and stir our hearts afresh, uh, Lord, to not only love you, but to love each other. So bless this time, we pray in Christ's name, amen. As you know, our world is filled with conflict and broken relationships, and quarrels happen in homes, and battles are fought between nations, right? The war in Ukraine has left thousands of casualties. We have a, um, a missionary that we support in Ukraine. He's an American. He decided to stay. He's been there 30 years. And, um, you know, and he gives us these stories you know, of wives that have been bereaved of their husbands and children who have lost their fathers, all because of one man's insanity, really. In our country, we can just look at our country, we see politicians relentlessly bash and scorn one another. Neighbors think nothing of robbing or assaulting their fellow neighbors, at least in Vallejo, I don't know about here. In homes, spouses can't get along. Children are at odds with their parents, parents with their children. In every sphere of life, there's conflict, isn't there? There's brokenness. And and I know, just even looking out among you, that none of us really have escaped this to some degree, right? We've all experienced conflict. We've all experienced brokenness of some kind or another. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful to have loving friends who go about saying nice things about you behind their back? That would be good. A real friend is one who, when you've made a fool of yourself, they don't feel like you've done a permanent job. They're still your friend. A true friend is one who attacks you in the front, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs says. A genuine friend is one who knows you and still loves you. Well, the gospel of Christ produces those kind of loving, caring friendships. That's what it produces. And and I think maybe the clearest picture of this is when Paul and his companions went to Thessalonica and they preached the gospel to them. And what happened when they went there is that they developed personal loving relationships with the Thessalonians. And 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 what's interesting about that, it uh, it was in the midst of conflict that they went to these people and told them the truth that resulted in eternal life. 
But Paul didn't just give them information. He gave his life. He gave his life. They did this because the gospel is inescapably relational. Because the heart of the gospel is love that results in reconciliation. Hatred and conflict are replaced with love and forgiveness and friendship. And really, in 1 Thessalonians 2, we have one of the most beautiful pictures of how the gospel affects your life and your relationships. Because you have the gospel, you love people by giving your life. And so let's just read through this and notice how Paul reveals this. And what we're going to see as we read through this, you're going to hear Paul keep saying, you know, you know, you recall your witnesses, because he was being apparently challenged. And so he's writing to just remind them of his loving actions toward them. Notice what he writes. Look at verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that are coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave to you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What a tax, right? Beautiful text. Paul Paul wrote this to remind the Thessalonians of his character and loving actions. And he really, I think, was defending himself and his companions from accusations. Apparently, there were some critics who were casting doubt on Paul's character and his motives in an effort to destroy his message so as to ruin the faith of the Thessalonians. And so Paul refutes his enemies' accusations by simply letting the record speak for itself. He just let the record speak for itself. He reminded them of what they knew concerning his loving actions and his character. And in doing this, we are left with a beautiful picture of how the gospel should be lived out. This is how the gospel should be lived out. That's the fruit of this, really, defense of Paul. He's he's telling us how he lived his life because of the gospel. And you live out the gospel 
by loving others. And so this morning, we want to look at giving your life in love. Giving your life in love. And I've subtitled this, Lovingly, Loving Relationships Centered in Christ. Loving Relationships Centered in Christ. And what we're going to see is this, this passage is extremely practical in revealing how to have loving relationships with each other in Christ. So this should be very helpful for us. And we're going to look at three things from this text. First, your loving relationships with believers are founded, are rooted in the gospel. They're rooted in the gospel. What unites us is Christ. That's what unites us together. And then second, your loving relationships with believers have a goal, right? Our our friendships with each other have a goal, which is to stir one another to walk in a manner worthy of God. That's the goal. We want to stir each other on in Christ. And so by knowing your objective of your relationships, you can encourage one another toward that end. And then third, your loving relationships with believers is carried out doing very practical loving things. And Paul's going to reveal some things here that we can just practice. And so you live the gospel by giving your life in love. So let's look at this. First, to have loving relationships centered in Christ, know that the gospel is the foundation of your relationship. Now, you think about friendships, right? You have friendships with people, and everybody has friends, probably with others, and they're often rooted in all kinds of things, right? You could have similar interests, maybe similar hobbies. Maybe you like motorcycles or barbecuing, or maybe you like cats or dogs, right? Fishing, playing games, guns. Found out some of the men like that. You may root for the same team, not the Dodgers. The Giants, yeah. Or maybe your kid's soccer team, right? You may be at the same stage of life, right? You may be a mother of a preschooler, or you're in an RV club, or maybe you're a college student, right? People develop friendships over common interests. But the root of believers' relationship is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. He says, After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. And then later in verse 8, he says, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. The whole purpose of Paul and Silas and Timothy going to Thessalonica was to proclaim the gospel to these people. And because some of the Thessalonians actually responded to the gospel by repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ for their salvation, they developed a relationship with Paul and Silas and Timothy. What united them and what unites us is the gospel. Uh, Apart from Christ, they would have no relationship. We're united in the gospel. That's what unites us, right? It's Christ. Apart from Christ, we would have no relationship. And what the gospel does is it removes all those barriers that separate people, right? Race, economic, political, and social walls, they're all broken down by Christ. We all stand on equal footing at the foot of the cross, right? We're all saved the same way by the blood of Jesus. That's what we have in common, Christ. Amen? That's what we have in common. And so because we have Christ, we, have, we enjoy the same blessings, many blessings, right? We're part of the same family. God is our Father. We're part of His household. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Praise God for that. 
We have the same privileges. We're fellow citizens, right, of the kingdom. We're heirs of the kingdom. We have eternal life. We have the same mission, right? We're supposed to go out and make disciples, right, and share the gospel with people. And as they receive the gospel, then we're to help them grow in Christ. We have the same mission. We're blessed with the same spiritual blessings in Christ. Every spiritual blessing, actually, right? Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, peace beyond comprehension, right? Abundant joy, pleasures forevermore, all because of Christ. We share all those things. In a world filled with so much conflict on every level, Christians have the joy of loving relationships in Christ. Praise God. The joy of loving relationships. And, and, and beloved, you, you are privileged to have these relationships. Don't take them for granted. Don't take them for granted. Right? Instead, nurture your relationships. Be around believers. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Right? Forgive one another. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. I mean, those are all the one another's we're supposed to be fulfilling because we have these relationships in Christ. The foundation of it is Jesus, right? One of the reasons why we have small groups in our church is to do those very things, right? To stimulate one another, to encourage one another. And I would encourage you, if you're not in a small group, get in a small group, right? That's the whole purpose of them, right? We're, we're, we're in our small group. My wife and I, we, we attend one, and, and we break up, and men and women to pray, and we'll get, the guys will just start sharing some burdens, and we'll pray for one another. And then afterwards, I'll just grab the guy next to me and say, Hey, I heard, you know, you shared this. Let me just walk you through that. Let me ask you some questions. Let me help you. Right? And that's what they're for. Right? To help one another grow in Christ. And because we want others to experience what we have in Christ, his love, his joy, his peace, his forgiveness, like Paul, we speak the gospel even amid much opposition. Listen, the most loving thing Paul could have done was go to Thessalonica with the gospel so these people would be saved from their eternal misery and granted eternal life. You you are called, beloved, to speak the gospel in love. You're called to do that. That's the work that God is doing and that we get to joyfully participate in. And so I would urge you to prayerfully do that this week. I, I was encouraged to, when Chris mentioned you guys are going out evangelizing this week. Praise God. If you can, go to that. What an opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus, to tell them uh, about Christ so they too can experience the love of Christ and have their sins forgiven. And if you're not a believer in Christ, I would urge you, come to Christ. Experience His love. Experience His joy. Experience His pleasure. Experience His delight. Right? And you do that by simply turning from your sin and trusting in His finished work for you. There's no greater joy, no greater joy than Christ. But here's what sometimes happens, right, as believers. We forget the gospel is the foundation of our friendship. Because even in the church, right, we have friendships that are based on common interests or different stages of life. And the danger is letting those interests become the foundation of your relationship instead of Jesus. So this brings us to our second point. To have loving relationships centered in Christ, know the goal of your relationship with other believers. Know the goal. What is the goal of your friendships? Well, notice how Paul ends this passage. Look at verse 12. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own 
kingdom and glory. Paul's whole desire for them was that they would walk in a worthy manner of God. And so we should be stirring one another to live our lives in such a way that we're bringing honor to God. And you do this because you're called by God into his own kingdom and glory. That's why you do this. He's called you into his kingdom and glory. And notice who does the calling here. God does it. And the reason why God does the calling is the Bible clearly teaches that no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. Everyone has gone their own way. Everyone's doing their own thing. Everyone acts as if they are God. And amazingly, while you were going your own way, being your own God, God calls you to himself, the true God. I mean, what a loving, gracious God we have, right? And can you remember that day when he called you and he went after you? I can remember that. It was a while ago. But I remember I'm doing my own thing, going my own way, and God just interrupted my life. Showed me the beauties and wonders of Christ. Never been the same. Right? He's the shepherd who finds the lost sheep. He does the seeking. He's the one who called you and gave you ears to hear. He's the one who opened your eyes to behold the beauties and wonders of Jesus. He does that. God enabled you to see the desperate plight you're in, that you were under the condemnation of God, that you had stored up wrath for yourself because of your rebellion. And then God enables you to see that Jesus paid it all. Right? He paid it all. And you humbled yourself and you received Christ. Now here's what's incredible. God not only forgives you, He calls you into unsurpassable blessings. Paul says it, into his kingdom and glory. That's what he calls you to. So he doesn't just forgive you. He calls you into his kingdom and glory. And and even in our fallen, cursed world, you see the fingerprints of the majesty of God in his creative work everywhere. The the beauty of a a colorful sunset. We, We live on a hill and... And right across the street from us, there's a street that goes down, so there's nobody across the street from us, and our house faces west, and every night, we see this beautiful sunset, and a lot of times, it's cl- when it's cloudy, you really see the beauty of that. Or, or you could just be walking, we were out with, uh, with the guys, and we're walking through, and there's a, there, the wildflowers are out right now, and just the, even the wildflowers, the beauty of God's creation. His fingerprints are everywhere. Well, the one who created that is beautiful and delightful. He knows how to please you, right? Imagine being in a kingdom where there's no curse, there's no decay, there's no death, there's no unrighteousness, there's no conflict, there's no pain, there's no sorrow. The the beauty would be stunning beyond imagination. And, And the center of attention in this kingdom is the king who radiates the splendor of his glory. Well, God has called you into that kingdom, which you're one day going to inherit. But now, by faith, you experience fellowship with your king and his people. Now, if God has called you into that kingdom, you should live a certain way. You should live a certain way. You are to encourage one another to walk in a manner worthy of God. Encourage one another to walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul had one specific aim in his relationship with these believers. Live lives worthy of God. That's his supreme desire for them. 
Because there's no higher calling. There's no worthier goal for your life than to live for the glory of God. No higher call. And so in your friendships with believers, in your discipleship, in your leading of others, in your marriage, in your family, you should be stirring one another toward this end to honor Christ with your life. We should be challenging one another to do much for Christ. Do you have Christian friends like that? Are you that Christian friend? Right? We need brothers and sisters like that to stir us on, right? Now, when Paul mentions your walk, he's talking about how you live, right? The word walk is a common word used in the New Testament to describe the Christian life, right? Growing in Christ's likeness. When, you're an un- when you were an unbeliever, right, you walked according to the course of this world. You lived according to the principles of the world, which was against God. But now that you're in Christ, you're a new creation, and you have good works that God has prepared for you to walk in. You're to walk in these works He's prepared for you to do. You're to, no longer to walk like an unbeliever, but you're to walk in love as a child of light. You're to be careful how you walk, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. And so encourage one another to walk in the truth. Let God's Word be the foundation of your walk and how you live your life to honor God. You should walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. What's he worthy of? See, that's what we've got to ask ourselves. What's Jesus worthy of? What kind of life would bring honor to the one who died in my place? Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the love of Christ controls me. That's what controls me. That's what's honoring to him. We no longer live for ourselves, he says, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And so we should be stirring one another, helping each other strive to live in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, here's what's interesting. When he says that God has called you, he uses a present tense. And so God is continually calling you. So so Paul here is not simply thinking about your initial call to salvation when God saved you. There's there's an ongoing call. God is continually calling you to walk in a manner worthy of Him. He's calling you to increased effort and higher goals. And and this whole idea of walk pictures progression, right? You should be progressing in your walk. You should be excelling still more, advancing, growing, maturing, right? Because you haven't arrived yet. You haven't arrived yet. You still need to grow. You still need to become more like Jesus And so you should be constantly striving toward this end where you're maturing and being more useful in Christ's kingdom. So you should ask yourself, how how can I be more useful this year for Jesus? Summer's coming, right? What can I do for Jesus these next three months? A lot of times summer comes, we're thinking, hey, I'm getting away, I'm going to go do this thing, that thing. What can you do for Jesus? the next three months. Set some goals, right? You, you know you're supposed to share the gospel. Maybe make it a goal to share the gospel. Share the gospel. Be praying about that. Be equipping yourself to, you know, learn how to share the gospel. Maybe your goal is, hey, I need to get better at doing the Word. We're supposed to be doers of the Word. So as I hear sermons, 
and I, I'm supposed to be doing them. Maybe get together with other believers and talk about what you're learning and how you can better do the word, encourage and stir each other on. Or maybe your goal is to learn how to put a specific sin to death. Maybe you've been discouraged by a besetting sin, and you decided, man, I've got to learn how to kill this sin and put on righteousness. Often that involves biblical counseling, right, where you need somebody maybe to walk alongside you and help you overcome that sin. Or maybe you're at the place where you want to help others and come alongside them and help them overcome certain sins. Well, get trained in biblical counseling. Make it a goal to grow in Christ so you walk in a manner worthy of God, honoring Him with your life. And, and, and share your goals with your friends. And, and let's encourage one another. Let's stir one another toward this end to do much for Jesus. He's worthy, right? He's worthy. Let's not be static but advance for Christ. Press on toward the goal, toward the prize, which is Christ. Right? That's what Paul says in Philippians, right? I'm pressing on toward Jesus. Remember that the God who calls you to walk in a manner worthy of him is also the God who enables you. Praise God for that. So if, you make, if your desire is to press on in Christ, to, to overcome sin, to live a godly life for the glory of Christ, as you make steps of obedience, he's going to help you. Right? This, the, the, the will of God is your sanctification. He wants you to change. He wants you to grow in Christ. In fact, he's conforming you to the image of Christ. And so if you step out in obedience and depend on him, he's going to help you. Praise God. God gives you his word. He gives you the Holy Spirit. His grace enables you in your weakness. And he also uses other Christians to help you. And that's the emphasis of this text. Right? He uses other Christians. Praise God. The Christian life is to be lived out in a community of believers called a church where you have loving relationships, where you're stirring one another on. And we all need that. And so that brings us to our third point. To have loving relationships centered in Christ, you live out the gospel by giving your life. Live out the gospel by giving your life. Paul's emphasis of the first part, the first half of this passage, is on speaking the gospel. He, he talks about speaking in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. And so in love, you're to speak the gospel to unbelievers so they can be saved from wrath. But you're also to speak the gospel to believers because through the gospel, we're built up, we're, we grow, we overcome sin, we become more like Jesus so we can walk in a manner worthy of God. God is, uses His Word for your sanctification. That's what He uses. So to help one another grow, speak the Word to one another. Speak the Word, that's what Paul did. But in the second half of this passage, and that's what I really want to, what I want to focus on here, is Paul, Paul's emphasis is no longer on speaking the gospel, but on living the gospel, living it out. The gospel doesn't simply change what you believe, it transforms how you live. So it's not just information, it's transformation. It transforms you. Your life becomes radically different, and you begin to love others in very practical ways by giving your life. And, and really what, what we see pictured here is discipleship in action. Right? This is just discipleship in action. So do you want to learn how to disciple someone so they grow in Christ? Well, just follow what Paul did because he shows us what he did. 
He came to Thessalonica. He preached the gospel. Some of these people believed and got saved, and then he just began to pour his life in them. That's discipleship. He began teaching them to observe all of Jesus' commands by giving his life. That's discipleship. But we need to realize something. These principles that we see here, these discipleship principles can be applied to leadership, how you lead others. It can be applied to your marriage, to parenting, and to your relationships with other believers. Discipleship is simply giving your life to others for their good and God's glory. You live out the gospel by giving your life. Now, what's interesting is that Paul uses a metaphor here to describe how the gospel should be lived out in our relationships. And he could have chose any number of metaphors, right? There's all kinds of metaphors he could have picked, but he chose the most intimate metaphor of a mother and a father to illustrate the kind of care we are to have for one another. So it's Mother's Day, so hey, appropriate text here. We're going to see how Paul was a mother. (laughs) Funny, spiritual mother, right? And a spiritual father. So, beloved, by in giving your life, you are to sacrificially care for others like a mother. Sacrificially care for one another like a mother. Look at verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, our working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Very, very tender language here, right? Very tender language. And even more tender, right? Because this is coming from a man, right? And really, it's a beautiful picture of how we're to care for each other. And this portrait of a caring mother is in contrast to Paul's critics who had accused him of doing things for selfish gain. It went something like this. You went to Thessalonica, Paul, out of greed to seek the glory of men. And so to counter that criticism, Paul responds by reminding them that he actually spent himself like a mother would for her infant child. And the point is this, true belief in the gospel results in caring relationships like this. That's what it results in. You care for each other. You want to help each other and stir each other on because you have Christ. And so if you're caring caring like a mother, then you're gentle. You're gentle with others. Paul says in verse 6, as an apostle, I could have asserted my authority. He had authority from God. And and that word uh, assert here means weight. He could have thrown his weight around as an apostle. He didn't do that. Instead, he was gentle. And And I think what a good reminder for us, for those in authority, right? Elders and leaders and husbands and parents, you need wisdom in asserting your authority. Because sometimes you can be burdensome to people, weighing them down instead of helping them out. In this case, Paul was determined to be gentle. Why? Because these are young believers. They just got saved. They had much to unlearn, much to learn. And so Paul's gentle. Paul's patient with them. 
Are you gentle with one another? Are you patient with one another? A nursing mother, of course, is a picture of gentleness where she nourishes and cares for her child. She gives unselfish, loving care, listen, with no thought of profit, no thought of honor to herself. Nobody actually sees what she's doing most of the time. She only bestows benefits. She's giving herself away. A a nursing mother is a servant, for the child is completely dependent upon her to meet his needs. And the baby is going to let mom know when he has needs. Right? Doesn't matter. He doesn't know what time it is, what, day, what time of day or night. Doesn't matter. And I can remember those long nights when we had infants in the home. Well, I'm sure Becky, my wife, remembers them much better than I do because I didn't always get up. See, this is how Paul cared for the Thessalonians. He was closely involved in their lives with no thought of selfish gain. He wasn't thinking about himself. Do you care for believers like this? Where you're sacrificing your time and your energy to serve others so they grow in Christ? Are you burdened about that? I'm sure there's many opportunities to serve in this church. I just watched a whole bunch of kids walk out of here. Praise God for the next generation. Right, you could serve the youth, the children. There's adults to serve here. Are you willing to give yourself away like a nursing mom? This means, when you do that, this means there's not going to be much return. Right? There's not, not a lot of glory in this. And when you give yourself to help others grow, there's not going to be much reciprocation, especially when they're like children, right? They're receiving so that they can grow and mature. Are you willing to give your life away simply because you love people and you want to see them mature so they grow in Christ? Can I just say something here? When you do that, God gives you joy. God gives you joy when you do that. There's joy in knowing God is using you as you impact others for Christ. And it's a privilege to do this. It's an honor. Now, Paul treated them this way because his goal, remember, was to help them walk worthy of God. That's his goal. That's what he's aiming at. And so that required nurturing, it required care and gentleness and patience. And he's pouring out his life to help them grow in Christ. And listen, let me just tell you, warn you here, when you do that, it gets messy, right? When you just get involved in someone's life, it gets messy. It's like changing diapers. I never liked that part of parenting, right? But you're willing to help people through their messes so they learn to grow in Christ. You're willing to help them. Well, you got to be patient and gentle, knowing there's going to be setbacks. I mean, think how much time it takes to raise children. you got to teach them the same lesson over and over and over, right, until they get it. Sometimes there's two steps forward and one steps back. Or you got to help them in another area, in one area, and then as they grow in that area, then there's another area that needs to be addressed. So you got to be forbearing. you got to be kind. But the investment in the lives of others is worth it. It's worth it when you see them grow and mature and you see them start following your example and ultimately following Christ. I think of the aged Apostle John when he, said, when he wrote this. He says, I have no 
greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Wow, how beautiful. No greater joy. No greater joy than that. It was like a proud papa, right? A few months ago, our oldest son lives in Anaheim. He sent us a video of our then seven-month-old grandson. And uh, he's taking his first step. He had pulled himself up on the couch. He's kind of a bruiser, you know, and pulls himself up on the corner of the couch. And he's kind of unsteady there. And he takes a step, and he grabs the other corner. of the. And you could just hear proud Papa in the background, you know, and watching him take one of his first steps. Well, when you see your disciples that you're pouring in your life into take some baby steps in the right direction, you, you pop a few buttons, right? It gives you joy right? It's so encouraging. That's your reward, right? There's no greater joy, John says. And by the way, when Paul uses this metaphor of a mother and a father, he assumes that that's what you're doing as a parent. That's what he's assuming here. This is what parents do, right? This is what mothers do, right? They're, they're nurturing. They're gentle. They, they sacrifice their interests for their kids, And this is what fathers do, right? They instruct, they motivate, they're engaged, they're not passive. And they do this because they love their children. And so these principles that we see here about caring for one another should actually begin in your home, right? They should be seen there because of the natural affection you have for your children. Listen, your home is your training ground. It's your training ground. It's like elementary Christianity. And if you're not living the Christian life at home, and you're only living here at church, and that, that's fake Christianity. Right? Real Christianity is living it in, out in your home. Right? And so you look at the, the qualifications of an elder or a deacon, right? They, right? They got, the qualifications are, what's your home like? Are you loving your wife? Are you a one-woman man? Are you right, managing your household? Because right? that's where it's lived out first. So Paul's assuming that as a parent, you're doing these things. Now, here's what happened. And here's what, ha- here's what happens to us, too. But because Paul poured out his life in these people, they became dear to him. Look at verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you became very dear to us. So here we have another principle for moms, right? You, you, you are to have a fond affection for others. Paul had a longing for them, which was demonstrated in that he imparted the gospel, which was the most loving thing he could have done, right? Give them the gospel. He gave them the priceless treasure of Christ, The gospel is the foundation of our relationships, but because Paul gave them the gospel, he also imparted his life. So Paul's goal was not simply to give people information. That's not his goal, right? Here's some facts that you need to believe. That's not the goal. Yeah, we're going to give you some facts to believe, but that's not the only thing we're going to give you. And I've heard people say, I love teaching. Right, I teach at a seminary, and you've got these young guys in there. Oh, I love teaching. Okay, great. Praise the Lord. We need teachers of the Bible. But do you love people? Do you love people? Because if the gospel is true, then by definition, it's relational. Right? 
right? Because the gospel is about being reconciled to God and to one another. The gospel is about loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. It can't get more relational than that. So because Paul believed the gospel, he couldn't help but give his life. And so he gave himself away to help these believers grow in Christ so God would be glorified. And so do you give your time and energy pouring out your life into others to help them grow in Christ? And we notice something here also, beloved. It's not just Paul. This this is not just Paul. Paul the super saint. Paul the apostle. No. Notice what he says in verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart our life. It's not just Paul. It's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We. They all did this. The Thessalonians had become very dear to Paul and Silas and Timothy. They were well pleased to give their life in service to them. And I love this word, well pleased. It means to take pleasure in. And it's a word used six times of the father's pleasure in his son. Oh, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. I want you to be well pleased with him. I want you to delight in my son. Paul says we took great pleasure to give you our lives. We were glad to be spent for your souls. And again, what you see here is discipleship is costly. It's costly, right? You have to get involved in people's lives. You got to come alongside and help them grow in Christ. But in the process, they become very dear to you. And it can't be helped because you're investing so much time and energy in them. I mean, think about parenting, right? When you invest 18 years in your child's life, they become very dear to you, right? You spend so much time investing in them, trying to help them come to Christ and grow in Christ and and become a, a responsible adult. And then when they become adults and they leave your house, you continue to want to have a relationship with them because you know they're going to go through various stages of life where they're going to need help. Well, that's true in pouring your life out into others. It's well-pleasing to give your life because they become dear to you. They become dear to you. And so loving relationships means being willing to sacrificially care for others like a mother. Notice how far Paul went was willing to go in his sacrificial care for others to prove his affection. Look at verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So here's the third principle that we can learn from a nursing mom, right? You should be willing to forgo your rights and comforts while laboring unselfishly for others. So be willing to forgo your rights and your comforts while you labor unselfishly for others. And notice that Paul mentions the the gospel again, right, in this verse, which is the foundation of our our friendships. But even though he mentions speaking the gospel or proclaiming the gospel, the emphasis of this verse is his desire not to be a burden to them. Paul, in other words, had a right for, to be paid for proclaiming the gospel. But he was willing to forgo that right because he didn't want to excessively weigh them down. So he toiled, and the idea of this word is intense labor that he says was united with hardship. 
In other words, Paul worked himself until he was fatigued. He was weary, working night and day to physically meet his own needs and while he continued to proclaim the gospel. So he's working these long hours to the point of exhaustion to discharge his double function of meeting his own needs and then presenting them the gospel and preaching the gospel. Doing double duty, as it were. At night, when most people were at rest, Paul was at work. What a, that's a picture of a mom, a nursing mom, right? That's a picture of a nursing mom, right? Day and night, whenever the baby has needs, she labors to the point of exhaustion to care for her child. Ministry, serving others, is often exhausting work. And it requires sacrifice of your comforts, sacrifice maybe of some of your desires so you can help others. And while other people are resting or playing, you're laboring because Jesus is worthy. You're laboring. And you do this because you desire to see Christ honored in their lives. I mean, just think about our culture today. Our culture emphasizes ease, right? Comfort, not hard work. I mean, we got a generation of young people coming up, and it's such a soft culture. A restaurant hired some college students. They were constantly talking to each other, so the manager came up and said, hey, get to work. And so they, they went and complained to the supervisor. You know, this, the manager is really mean. So, well, what did he say? He says, we need to stop talking and start working. It's like, well, that, yeah, that's what we're paying you for. Right? I mean, if the world understands that, right, then shouldn't we labor more for Christ? He's worthy. The love of Christ controls us. That the work that you're doing for Jesus in the lives of others will bear eternal fruit. I mean, we gotta, we got to have our eyes on eternity. We have, our, have your eyes on the end. Sometimes we're too short-sighted. And so can you sacrifice some of your comforts for Jesus? Can you labor hard to the point of exhaustion for Christ? Are you willing to give up some of your desires so others can grow in Christ? You know what that may mean? It may mean giving up some of your evenings. That's what it may mean, giving up some of your evenings so you can study and you can prepare so you can teach others. It may mean giving up your Saturday morning so that you can meet with others and help them grow in Christ. It may mean at the end of a long day when you just want to relax and rest, you take time to disciple your child or maybe have meaningful conversations with your spouse. And all the ladies said, amen, right? But is Jesus worthy of that? Is he worthy? Is he worth you pouring out your life and others so they grow and are more useful for the kingdom of God? See, when, when you forego your rights and your comforts, where you unselfishly labor so others go in Christ, that, that exalts him. That's a living a life worthy of God. And so be willing to sacrificially care for others like a mother because Jesus is worthy. Now, the maternal metaphor is only part of the picture. Second, in living out the gospel, you have to love others like a father. Love others like a father. So now we're getting into Father's Day. So, all right, we're a little ahead of ourselves, but it's in the text. So let's look at this. Verse 10, 
You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. So here, Paul describes his behavior toward the Thessalonians now as a loving father. Another intimate picture, right? And you need to. And when we, what we learn about a father is that you first of all model godly behavior. Fathers are examples to their children, and they imitate them. That's a scary thing, right? I got five kids, and they start imitating you. Sometimes not the good part either, right? As a spiritual leader, Paul knew he needed to be a godly example. So we we should be striving for that. Strive to be a godly example to others. And when you have godly character and. You, you treat people with dignity. You treat them with respect. And, and so Paul, again, here in verse 10, he just appeals to what they already knew about his life. He was devout. It means to be holy. He was pure. He was upright and just, which means he treated people fairly without partiality. And he says he was blameless. He was out without fault or cause of reproach. His life was not cause for scandal. And these character qualities reveal he lived out the gospel he professed to believe. In other words, Paul lived out exactly how he wanted them to live it out so they would bring glory to God. So we, we should strive to live in such a way that we are, our life is consistent with the gospel we say we believe. Right, we should strive for that. That your, 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 your profession, your life matches, matches your profession. Can others testify that you're devout and upright and blameless? So the evidence of Paul's godly character is then seen in specific actions. Verse 11, here's what he did. Here's how he lived it out. Just as you know how we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So from... The example of fathers, we learn this. You instruct others according to their individual needs. That's what a father does. You instruct according to individual needs. Paul had a ministry to the Thessalonians. He took time to get to to know them individually. He says he was involved in each one of their lives. Wow. That's what a father does, right? You don't just randomly train your kids, right? No, you're you're individual, right? Because they have different needs, So Paul had a father's heart, and so he pursued each one of them with the desire to instruct and motivate them. Do you have a father's heart? Do you take time to get involved in the lives of others where you know them well enough so you know whether they need to be exhorted or encouraged or implored? That clearly requires time and sacrifice. So when you're helping others grow in Christ, it's slow, it's laborious, but it's affectionate work you're like a father. So that takes time, right? Because that means having people in your home. It means taking them out to coffee. It means being involved in their life. The reason fathers know whether to exhort or implore or encourage is because they see things in their life of their children because they live with them, they, right? They're around them. They see what's going on. Well, it takes time to develop loving, caring relationships like this. But if you desire to glorify God with your life, you've got to develop these kinds of friendships. And so from a father, we learn that you instruct others specifically. 
And Paul uses three words here to describe how he did this. Fathers exhort their children to a particular line of conduct. The word means to literally to call to one side. So the picture is of a father coming alongside his child to instruct him wisely so he lives right. You entreat him to live this way because you know the danger and folly of sin. And so when you read Proverbs as an example, Solomon repeatedly addressed his son to avoid certain things, avoid certain people, and put God first. Right? Fear God. Walk in His ways. And this word exhort is in the present tense. You continue your walking alongside one another, and you're exhorting each other to continue in the right path. But a father also encourages his child right, to continue on the right course. And this, this word encourage means to console, to comfort. And the, and the reason you need to do this, there's a lot of obstacles in life. We fail. We, we fall on our face sometimes. We get discouraged as believers. And we need faithful friends who will again point us to Christ. Right? You're in some heavy-duty trial, and you think God has forgotten you. Right? What do you do? You get somebody comes alongside you and says, Jesus is still reigning. Jesus is still sovereign. Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus can hold you up. His grace is sufficient for you. A bruised reed he won't break off. He's a tender shepherd. He's a high priest who's been tempted in everything. So he knows about temptation. And he can come to help you in your time of need. Right? And so you point them back to Christ. Again, it's present tense. Right? We need to be encouraged continually. Right? Because we face so many troubles and problems in this life. Father also implores his child. This word means to solemnly charge, to bear witness because of things you've noticed, things you've seen. So when a father sees his child defiant or going astray, he implores him with serious words. And love moves him to speak tough words. And so sometimes you've got to do that with one another. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You love someone enough to implore him with God's word to follow Christ again. Get back and follow in Christ. And so as a loving father, Paul would not leave things unsaid. His fatherly love included both encouragement and admonition with the goal that the gospel would bear fruit in their lives, that they would walk in a manner worthy of God. And so we are called to demonstrate this same parental care for each other showing gentleness and care for each other, but also having urgency not to allow ungodly behavior to go unchallenged, which is surely the harder thing to do, right? We don't like to do that part. But in love, be willing to do the hard things to help one another stay on track, to honor Christ. And so seek to have this balance of being gentle and direct. Right? You need wisdom, right? You need wisdom. Pray that God would give you the wisdom to know when to speak what. Paul did all of this because his supreme goal was their good and God's glory. That's why he did all this, verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. When you invest your life in others because you love them, and you desire to see them 
glorify God. That's why you do this. And so be willing to give your life in love where you have friendships that give glory to God. I mean, what a church this would be, right, if we all had loving relationships like that. What a testimony it would be when we have relationships like this. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your word that instructs us, that guides us, that helps us know how we should be living with each other. And I I pray that you would continue to mature this church, grow this church, so these kinds of relationships are flourishing and that we would be willing to give our lives away in love for the sake of your honor, for the sake of your glory. Lord, so that each one of us is being stirred on to follow Christ. Because we know, Lord, the, the, the deceitfulness of sin and it produces a hardening. And what prevents that from happening in our lives is when others are encouraging us day by day. And so may we be that one that encourages one another day by day so that you're honored. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.